You're listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and with me as always is Christopher Parr, director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Hello, Chris. Hi. Hi. Chris has gathered his favourite facts from the Institute's activity this week, and he's going to share them with us today. So what has this week brought you and the other fact chasers at the Institute, Chris? Well, you remember that thing that happened sometime in the recent past, where a bunch of people on Reddit made GameStop's stock prices go up lots. Yes. Well, we thought that maybe there was an opportunity to make some money for the Institute by doing a similar thing with the Institute on Reddit. Oh, okay. But then we realised that you need to have stocks, which means you need to be a publicly traded company, which means there needed to be people who would want to invest in your company. So we didn't do that. Right. I'd invest. If I had money, I would invest, Chris, just to keep my livelihood going if it was necessary. I would I would put what little money and buttons and bus tickets I have in my pocket to good use at the Munchausen Institute. Okay, well, I'll keep that in mind for a rainy day. Uh, okay. Well, how about then? Uh, instead of doing that, we do a podcast. Um, yeah. Oh, wait, can you hear that? What? Oh, they're coming. What? Who's coming? The facts. <laughs> That brings us on to our first facts. What is it, Chris? Copromancers were fortune tellers who told the future with poo. Good. Uh, fortune telling or uh, divination has throughout history been a popular trade and for millennia was considered a mainstream scientific endeavour. You like science, don't you, Chris? I quite enjoy the, the science, yes. Yes, so this is a science. It's sort of like weather forecasting is now, really. There have been myriad methods of fortune telling over the ages. There's the obvious ones like astrology and tassiography and some more nuanced and less known ones like pyromancy. I'll tell you what, Chris, do you want to, do you want to play a game? Should we do uh, work out what the, uh, the science is by, from the word? Okay, although I should point out right now that I object to your use of the word science to describe these. All right, okay. Well, um, what would you call it? Nonsense. Well, it sort of ends the same. S- similar word, I guess. All right, oh, fine. Um, Right, guess the guess the nonsense. Okay. <laughs> uh, first one, pyromancy. Fire. That is good. Well done. Yes, it's the ancient Greek divination technique which uses flames to predict the future. Is that like, oh, I can see some fire. I predict in the future my house will burn down. I mean, I haven't looked that deeply into it, but that, I feel like that would work. That is pretty exact science right there, isn't it, Chris? Uh, yes, exact nonsense, yes. Yeah, exact nonsense, yes. Um, uh, second one, zoomancy. Animals. It is, it is animals. You're good at this game. Uh, it's behaviour of animals. Uh, that's Greece again. They, uh, they, they seem to like divination in Greece. Anthropomancy. Well, antho is human, so it's something to do with people. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, you've guessed it, the entrails of human sacrifices. Oh, good times. Yeah, that would be the Aztecs, obviously. <laughs> And furology, what do you reckon that is? Fur, fur, like, oh, look at that fur, something bad will happen. Well, it's Greek again, so that would be a Greek word root, not, uh, not fur, that would be English. Uh, so what, do you, what would that word root be? I don't know. Right, well, it's, it's, uh, it's the science of using the unpredictable tantrums of infants to predict future events. Furology as in fury, 
Yeah, it's ang- anger of children. But poop denomination sounds like a buttload of fun. Tell us about these compromises, Chris. So as you've alluded to at length there, there have been a, a multitude of methods people have used to predict an individual's future. Other ones include tarot cards, flights of birds, the lines on your palm, and even the relative and inaccurate positions of giant balls of burning hydrogen untold distances from the time of your birth. All these things have been used to work out if maybe you'll come into a bit of money or receive an exciting new opportunity. In the Middle Ages, which must be this podcast's favourite historical period, one popular method of fortune-telling was copromancy, whereby the copromancer, or shit-stirrer as they were commonly known, used the various qualities of an individual's faecal matter to predict their future. Right, cool. Well, uh, shit-stirrers, is that, that where the word comes from, shit-stirrers? Yeah, because in contemporary parlance, a shit-stirrer is somebody who gets themselves involved in other people's business and creates drama. And that was what these copromancers were sometimes perceived as doing, getting themselves involved in other people's business. In more ways than one. <laughs> yes, in, in multiple usages of the word business, yes. Yeah, well, I like that. It's always nice to see where words come from. That's good. So they actually, they look at the poo and work out from the poo what presumably that person who did the poo what their future's going to be like all right so what does it all mean then chris where does my where where does my poo come from chris (laughs) where does my poo come from um don't answer that from your bum piper from my bum right okay so what does it all mean what does my poo mean chris well i don't know what your poo means because thankfully i've not seen your poo right well i've got it in a little tub here I can post it to you if you want. Please don't post me or anybody your poo, Piper. All right, fine. I just thought you'd want a, a, a practical exercise to while away your time during lockdown, but fine, okay. Well, theoretically, what do different types of poo mean? So unlike, say, palmistry, which has limited repeat business because people's palms don't change that much, Copromancy was a potentially lucrative career in the Middle Ages because each poo an individual squeezes out is different and the differing qualities of the stools could be used to deliver new predictions each time. For example, it was thought that the length of a piece of excrement was indicative of the length of the client's life. The longer the log, the longer you'd live. Conversely, if the client dropped a load of little pellets like you sometimes do, that was thought to predict strife in the near future. So, I mean, it sounds like there is actually a correlation with real science here, because, you know, if you're a bit stressed out, sometimes you do weird little poos. And that's probably where this is all coming from, isn't it? Let's be honest, Chris. But like, let's just let's get into the nitty gritty of this poo. What about the consistency of your poo, Chris? Well, another quality compromancers look for when examining a client's dookie was firmness, which they believed was linked to wealth. A good solid arse biscuit, according to the art of compromancy, meant that the client was going to come into a considerable amount of money. However, looser anus toffee was a sign of approaching penury. What's penury? Poverty. Oh. With especially watery bum gravy, prophesying outright destitution. This was a fairly safe bet for copromancers during the history times because one of the symptoms of cholera and dysentery is diarrhoea. And if you had cholera or dysentery, chances are you were already poor. Right, so it's not so much predicting the future, but giving a fair guess 
at what your future might be based on your current situation, which is apparent in your actual biology, which is science. It's a very scientific method, this, Chris, isn't it? No, no, it's not. I mean, as you've already pointed out, Piper, if you're a bit stressed, you might do the little little pellets you sometimes do. So, I mean, if you did that and then another week you went in and had a long poo, I mean, that's two conflicting predictions. One saying you'll die soon, the other one saying that you'll live a long time. Yeah, I bet they've got a line for that, though, haven't they, these copromancers? They'll probably just be like, well, the, the we went through a different universe alignment or something and the stars have done a thing and now mercury's high ascending and now 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 the future is different and you you're not dead as you can see (laughs) wow you should be an astrologer piper that was very convincing thank you mystic piper no what would it be pessimistic piper the stars did a thing yeah the big one with the rings is over in the, the the lion bit so that means that maybe there'll be something happening soon. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You've got to be a bit vague, a bit vague, and people will listen. They'll be like, oh, yeah, that's me. That's me, that is, and 10 billion other people. 10 billion? No, I ho- hoped you wouldn't pick up on that. <laughs> um, and A number of other people, however many people there were in the middle of ages, maybe a tenth of that. I don't know. Um Anyway, it sounds like quite an important industry, doesn't it, Chris? Like for, for the people of the time, you know, it sounded like that they they had a lot of value in it. So were there some copromancers that were more professional than others, some that were more talented, some that had a, a better a success rate at, at the poo study? Yeah, particularly proficient poo prophets claim to be able to read the little lines and fissures on a, a mud pie for more detailed predictions. Arguably, this is where the real art of copromancy resides. I mean, anyone can say, oh, that's a big shit. You're going to live a very long time. (laughs) But it takes genuine copromantic ability, or at least cold reading and a taste for the theatrical, to say, this line on your butt nugget tells me that one of your pigs will get sick next week. So, yeah, they get into the detail of it. It may not necessarily be accurate, just like the rest of this uh, not science nonsense but it makes you come across as more professional and more able to do your job and whatnot so that's uh it's good to get that little bit of detail in there chris and 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 you did mention that it's an art which is you know if it's not a science that's still a noble profession so uh so that's quite good i mean i was using art in the more vernacular sense rather than actually you know some kind of creative process i mean the same way that trump talked about the art of the deal Right. Yeah, in the same way that Trump talked about the art of the deal, a copromancer might talk about the art of shit. Yes. Satire. So, so Chris, paint a shit picture for us. How would a typical encounter with a copromancer go? So there are a handful of accounts of visits to copromancers in the historical record. Generally, they would begin with payment. The fee was always collected up front in case the client ended up not liking their reading. Payment could be actual cash, but also grain, chickens, or maybe something more risque. Risque? Like what? You know, like a a quick fiddle around the back. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. No, uh, fine. You know, everyone's got to earn a living. Fine. And and then what? (laughs) So then the client would poo into the special copromantic bottle in full view of the copromancer. Oh, just to make sure there's no... uh... You know, you're not, you're not, um, what's the word? I don't know. Because you've barely started your sentence, Piper, so I don't know what you mean. <laughs> just, just to make sure like they're not providing fraudulent 
poo. Fake feces. <laughs> yeah, yes, as it's more commonly known. Well, that and also because each person's own unique shitting style, as well as the unique circumstances of that particular shit, were also factors in the reading. Wow. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot involved here. Yes. So then the copromancer would examine the poo. They would take into account all the qualities we've already discussed, as well as smell, touch, and taste. Right. Okay. So you really do have to be a certain type of person to become a copromancer, don't you? Yes. Incidentally, this is also where the phrase shit-eating grin came from. Oh, I see. So if they're particularly good, they'll be quite happy with their job and they're probably full of shit in in, in their mouth. (laughs) Right. I don't really feel like that needed explaining, but I did it anyway. (laughs) Good job. Thank you. You're a valued part of this podcast. Is this uh, part of your New Year's resolution coming through there, Chris? (laughs) Oh, that went down the drain a long time ago, Piper. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to hear it. I I like a bit of honesty, Chris. Okay, fine. (laughs) Crack on. So they would then make their pronouncements on the client's feature and the client would leave either satisfied or not. If the poo was impressive or somehow visually pleasing enough, the copromancer would dry it out and hang it outside their hovel with all the others. This was in lieu of a sign, as most people couldn't read back then. You'd know this was the shit-stirrer's hovel because of the shit hanging outside. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of houses were made with shit then, so I guess they'd have to have a very clear separate sign from the house just to show, you know, this isn't normal house shit. This is a sign that would normally have words on, but actually has shit on because you probably can't read. Good. So now that we've discussed in depth the so-called art of copromancy, why not describe the poo you say you've got in a tub and we'll see what we can divine of your future? No, I've I've got I've got poo shyness now, Chris. No, not like you know, not like I can't go because I've already gone. It's there, but like I don't really want to talk about it on air now. I, I, you know, we've done it. Well, I mean, you're the one who brought it up, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, I'm in lockdown, so uh, it's quite watery, and I don't actually want to do this, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I've literally got really embarrassed now. <laughs> oh no (laughs) i don't even yeah i mean no (laughs) i'm gonna ask you a question now because i'm not having you turn this podcast around (laughs) on me even though it was my idea (laughs) chris any times these shit stirrers have helped people with their predictions there is a story of a client who was advised by his local copromancer to avoid drinking from the village well A few days later, several people in the village became ill and died after drinking from the well, seemingly authenticating the shit-stirrer's prediction. However, it later turned out that it was the copromancer themselves who had poisoned the well in the first place as a way of making them seem more prophetic than they actually were. Oh, a scandal. An actual Middle Ages scandal, Chris. This is exciting. All right, any others? Perhaps the most famous story of copromancy concerns the copromancer patronised by Richard I, the 12th century King of England, also known as Richard the Lionheart. Oh, off of Robin Hood? Off of Disney's Robin Hood, yes. Well done. Yeah. The Lion Man. Well, in that film, he was a a lion man, yes. Well, an anthropomorphic lion, yeah. Yes. 
anyway, um, <laughs> the Quattromancer predicted military victory for Richard, a prediction which came true as Richard went on to achieve several victories over Saladin in the Holy Land. And the Shitstirer also warned Richard against fighting in France during Lent, an admonition to which the king really should have paid more attention. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so yeah, if he'd, if he'd have actually paid attention to the, uh, the Shitstirer, he would have actually not uh, done... I don't really know my history, Chris. What happened? He was shot by an arrow and died. Ah, I don't really know my Middle Ages weaponry, but that doesn't sound good. Well, no, I mean, you are the one who thinks they had assault rifles and laser-guided missile systems, so, yeah. Yes. Um, I love it when you do a callback to another episode where I've said something completely stupid and ridiculous. That's fine. Uh, good, thank you. Um, <laughs> so we have talked a bit about the legitimacy of this form of fortune-telling, but is there any actual evidence that this might be a legitimate science? Quite to the contrary, actually. Oh. Like many fortune-telling methods, there are a handful of practitioners of copromancy still around. Really? There's poo people still doing their thing? A handful. I said not two. No, I said poo. Poo, as in shit. Poo people. Oh, I said two <laughs> as in the number. Which would also have been, you know, somewhat apt. Ah! <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I'm very excited by the fact that these people are still around even if it's just a handful. But yeah, okay, tell me more, Coin. A few years ago, the scientists performed an experiment to see how valid copromancy actually is. So the scientists gave a number of turds from various people to the copromancers and asked them to make predictions based on them. This was a double-blind experiment, meaning that neither the copromancers nor the scientists knew which poo belonged to which person. The defecators were asked to keep detailed notes on the significant details of their lives for a year afterwards. And at the end of that year, these reports were compared to the predictions made by the copromancers. And the results were an abject embarrassment for the copromantic so-called arts. Except for the most conveniently vague aspects, none of the shit-stirrer's predictions matched actual events. None of them? None of them. However, the experiment was a feather in the cap of medical science, as two of the pooey participants were successfully diagnosed with and treated for bowel-related conditions based on their stool samples. Right. So they used actual science to help them, and the copromancy literally did the opposite. You might say that copromancy is full of shit. <laughs> okay, that brings us on to the second fact. What is this? The Nazis broadcasted a fake BBC radio. There was a lot of propaganda on both sides during the war and it was often aimed at both sides too the nazis used poster and flyer campaigns to try and turn the germans against the rest of the world while here in britain our government used similar means to basically tell us everything's fine business as usual which is where phrases like stiff upper lip and keep calm carry on came from Interestingly, it was no secret how well this worked. So the British government continued doing this right up to late 2020 when they realised far too late 
that continuing the stiff upper lip, Vera Lynn, we'll meet again. Keep calm, carry on. We're British and we'll be fine. Don't tell anyone you're scared. Push on through in spite of everything crumbling around you. Keep working, keep buying, keep calm, and we'll get to Tipperary one day. Stiff upper lip bullshit doesn't actually work during a pandemic and kind of just makes you look like a laughingstock to the rest of the world, which is opening up again, while we're left with 100,000 dead and more to come. Anyway, tell us about these silly Nazis pretending to be the BBC. Ooh, scathing. <laughs> so as you say, propaganda was a significant part of the war effort for both the Allies and the Axis during World War Two, as well as broadcasts, posters and pamphlets designed to convince their own citizens that the fighting was going better than it perhaps was, and that the enemy were inhuman monsters. The Allies and Axis powers also produced propaganda aimed at each other, meant to both clarify their own philosophies to the enemy and to demoralise them. Radio played a pivotal role in this, with the Nazis broadcasting Lord Hee-Haw and his anti-Roosevelt propaganda to America, and the BBC broadcasting a German-language version of their world service to Nazi-occupied territories. So what exactly was this particular effort from the Nazis? What was that? So all of the things we've just mentioned were examples of white propaganda, whose source is known. There is also black propaganda, which purports to originate from those whom it's trying to convince or demoralise. So Britain broadcast what it claimed to be a clandestine German radio station, espousing extreme Nazi views, accusing Hitler of going soft and revealing the sexual improprieties of the Nazi party. Meanwhile, the Nazis, to combat the propaganda being spread by the BBC, set up a fake BBC radio station and broadcast it across the UK. Oh, right. OK, so it was it was a retaliation then. So what was the what was the content of the radio station like? Newsreaders on the Nazis' fake BBC radio would read reports on how badly the war was going for the Allies in general, and Britain in particular, describing botched operations planned by an incompetent British army and humiliating defeats at the hands of the better-trained, better-equipped and far more stylish German army. They would explain to the British public that the Nazis really weren't all that bad. Most of what they told about them wasn't true. And why not just let them invade, yeah? I mean, yeah. Well, no, not yeah, Piper, because that would have been bad, wouldn't it? It would have been bad. <laughs> Are we going to have to do the whole you're secretly a fascist thing again? <laughs> no, I mean, not evil laugh. <laughs> Um, and the fake BBC would quite often go on about how Hitler could definitely take Churchill in a fight. Well, I mean, let's be fair. I think he probably could. I mean, Churchill was an old man. Hitler was, I don't think he was that old, was he? He, was, he looked a bit funny. He was a bit eccentric. But I reckon, you know, he was sprightly. Could probably, probably give him a run for his money. Do you reckon Hitler could take Churchill? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, Churchill was a big guy. But that was more to do with poor health and all the boozing than, you know, actual strength. And Hitler was a little guy, but you kind of get the impression that he was a bit scrappy. He'd bat your kneecaps off. Of course, it would be a completely different story. It was Churchill versus Hitler Mensch. Oh, yes. Yes, a previous podcast episode fame, Hitler Mensch or Hitler Man, the superhero kind of based on the concept of Hitler. Not kind of based, explicitly based on Hitler. It wasn't just a, a passing similarity. Oh, that three metre tall muscly guy looks a little bit like the Fuhrer. How strange. 
All right, so it was literally Hitler with extras. Yes, he could obviously have taken Churchill, fine. But, like, to be honest, if you answered this question with yes, yeah, I think Hitler could have taken Churchill, we might be accused of being a fake Nazi BBC radio station. But for the record, not Nazis. Not Nazis, Chris? Not Nazis, no. No Nazis here. Yes, that definitely sounded convincing. <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> So the Nazis did the BBC thing, and that was that was very interesting and weird. But did they get found out for it? Or, or is this like the first we've heard of it not being the actual BBC? Well, for a time, the fake BBC radio station was quite successful. Many British listeners were convinced of its veracity and suitably demoralised by its reports of Allied losses and Nazi benevolence. And many others were at the very least confused by the seemingly alternating tone of the BBC. However, sod's law being what it is, the longer this fake BBC radio was broadcast, the more likely it was that cracks would begin to appear in the facade. And though the fraudulent newsreader spoke in flawless English accents, a number of embarrassing gaffes led to the counterfeit BBC being unmasked as a Nazi plot. Oh, right. So they they were obviously shrewd enough to learn how to speak with received pronunciation like they do on the proper BBC, or they did back in the day when it was proper. But what were the embarrassing gaffes that you spoke about, Chris? So some of the newsreaders accidentally revealed their political affiliations. One began his broadcast with Heil Hitler. Another unthinkingly referred to Churchill as Britain's Führer and one unintentionally signed off with C. Kyle. Right, yeah, those are going to give the game away pretty quickly, aren't they? Although, I mean, I guess the UK wasn't quite as into the concept of ironic comedy as it is now. You know, they could have got away with it now if they said that, because I think, I think people would be like, oh, just being edgy, aren't they? Is that all the embarrassing gaffes that you gaffes that, gaffes, uh, no, gaffes that you've got? No, there's several more. Okay, crack on. Some of them revealed that they weren't as British as they were trying to make out. One said Worcester instead of Worcester. Oh, no. When searching for a cultural illusion, uh, one newsreader referenced Wagner instead of Shakespeare. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's not going to go down well. And one presenter admitted to gasp, putting sugar in the cup before the tea. I do that. (gasps) You Nazi. (laughs) <laughs> anymore there were also a couple of intelligence related blunders a report that london had been completely leveled in the nazi bombing raid was very confusing to those listening from a very unleveled london well yes <laughs> and in what was to be the final nail in the coffin of the fake bbc a newsreader accidentally read the real nazi news instead of the phony british news not only did it allow British military intelligence to learn a great deal about German troop movements, but the fact that it was in German clued the British public into the fact that this wasn't the real BBC. Yeah, it, you know, you say final nail in the coffin. Yeah, if if nothing else had worked, which it really should have done at this point, like 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 London has fallen, and you know, like, well, no, this is not the case. This is clearly a repeat. A repeat. <laughs> a re- yeah, <laughs> they're just just playing a rerun. But wait, it's never been it's never been falling before. Are you sure? No, it definitely hasn't. No, we're still here, and we we've always been here. Are they Nazis? Nah, can't be that. That'd be weird. No, uh, right. So yeah, then they start talking in German. If no one else has got the message yet, they're like, right, okay, yeah, probably 
probably not listening to the actual BBC here. Yeah, I get the concept, Chris. Thank you. Okay, good. I'm glad it it got through. <laughs> Sometimes I have to talk through it, you know. <laughs> um, so aside from blundering through a pretend, almost parody of a BBC radio station, are there any other times the Nazis fooled the British public? The fake BBC radio was the only time the Nazis were able to fool the British public for any length of time. Failed attempts to get the wool over the British included Nazi spies trying to convince the public that Churchill was dead, a deception which lasted until Churchill gave a radio address that evening, a rumour that there was no point in blacking out windows during the Blitz because Nazi pilots had X-ray vision, And the Great French Bamboozle, when the Nazis, in an attempt to stop the invasion of Normandy, tried to convince the Allies that France didn't even exist. I can sort of see him doing that. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Finland doesn't exist, so... Is there? Well, I mean, I saw someone on YouTube talking about it. I mean, I suppose the main question would be, why? Why pretend Finland exists if it doesn't? It's a laugh, isn't it? Okay, shall we move on? Okay, yes, right. So uh, we've established that France doesn't exist, but Finland probably does. Well, no, we've established that France does exist, but that the Nazis tried to convince us it didn't. Right, but Finland doesn't. No, Finland does. Finland and France both exist. Yes. I mean, you've been to Finland, right? Yeah, I've been to France as well. Well, there you go. Yeah, well, that's how they get you, though. By making you go to the places they say don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, conspiracy theorist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can I ask the next question? Please do. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Chris, what do you think the UK would look like if the Nazis had won the war? I think it would be very different than it is today. There would be widespread racism and xenophobia. We'd have a government more concerned with appearances than with the actual job of governing. And this completely hypothetical government, which only exists in some alternative history, would attempt to distract from its own corruption with empty displays of magnanimity and pleas for unity, while simultaneously sowing distrust and fostering antagonisms between social and cultural groups, all while speaking German. Yeah, that would be yeah, a very, very, very different landscape, wouldn't it, Chris? Yeah. So we're going to do the third fact now, as we've just done the second and the first before that. And now it is the third. What is the third? That's how numbers work. That's, That's number, number one. one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so incredibly glad that happened. <laughs> Um, a man attempted to zorb around the world. Inspired by hamsters, zorbing started in the 80s. Uh, it still kind of happens sometimes today. Well, not today. Most of us can't go out today, but like today as in the year before last, probably. Um, anyway, it's more difficult than it looks. You've kind of got to run around inside a ball and we've only got two legs, so we're not as good at it as hamsters. Uh, how far did this man get, Chris? So, yeah, I mean, as you, I mean, kind of said there, Zorbing is a recreational activity in which you get in a big plastic ball and roll around. Sometimes you're strapped in, sometimes you're not. Sometimes there's water in there with you, sometimes there's not. I believe they call that hydrozorbing, Chris. Yes, they do. 
And I seem to remember two people doing it once in the the far-flung past. Yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's the end of that. Nostalgia, everyone. There are a few world records associated with Zorbing. The longest distance travelled in a single roll in the Zorb is 570 metres. It's not actually that much, is it? Well, I mean, it's half a kilometre, so it's fairly far. The fastest speed recorded in the Zorb is 52 kilometres per hour, or 32 miles per hour. What? In, what, in a straight line or downhill? It didn't say when I read it on the internet. Right, I feel like it'd be cheating if it was downhill, because you wouldn't be doing that yourself, would you? Yeah, it would be gravity. So maybe gravity has the world record. Yes, yeah. <laughs> in the Kindest World Records, who's credited? Gravity. Because imagine how many world records gravity must hold. I feel like gravity has the world record for a lot of things. The fastest 100 metres in the Zorb was 23.26 seconds. Is that good? I think that's good. I mean, you're in a big plastic ball, so I think so, yeah. And in 2003, American James Thornfield attempted to set a world record for being the first person to Zorb around the world. He began in New York, where he lives, and managed to make it to the west coast of the USA before giving up. Wow. Okay, so he did a lot, didn't he? That's a fair amount. Was it successful up to that point? Thornfield's abandonment of his attempt was almost guaranteed from the beginning, as his journey was beset by problems pretty much as soon as he started. Within just five minutes of setting off, his Zorb got a puncture from some smashed glass on the pavement, or sidewalk, and had to be repaired. He initially planned to keep food in the Zorb with him and stock up every couple of days, but had to resort to eating out, as it were, when a thermos of hot soup split open and hot soup was spilled all over the inside of the Zorb and all over Thornfield. Oh, well, I mean, you say he was beset by problems, but like, I mean, aside from a few burns, that doesn't sound so bad. Well, over the course of his overland journey, Thornfield suffered many minor injuries, bruises and scrapes and burns from falling over and bumping into things and having hot soup spilled all over him. But he suffered much more serious injuries and almost had to cut short his record attempt when trying to cross a busy highway in the Midwest. Thornfield neglected to stop, look, listen, think and zorbed right out in front of a 60-wheeler. The lorry shunted Thornfield's zorb into the path of a minivan, which punted him into a station wagon, and Thornfield spent what must have been a terrifying few minutes being flung across the highway like a giant pinball until he was finally booted to the other side of the road. He had to spend the night in the hospital, though ever optimistic, he remarked that at least he hadn't had any hot soup in there with him. Ha ha ha! I like this guy, Thornfield. He sounds like a legend. I mean, obviously that would have been, would have been terrifying for him, but the idea of him being bumpered around a busy highway, basically like a pinball machine, that's really funny. I do like that. It is funny. He's probably got a good sense of humour as well, so he probably thinks so too. But like, if all of that, all of that, all of that stuff, Chris, if all of that didn't stop him, why did he give up? So upon reaching the West Coast, Thornfield was faced with the prospect of crossing the Pacific Ocean to Japan, which he would travel over to the Sea of Japan and then onto the mainland. It meant, of course, that he would have to bring food with him into the Zorb, and he wisely decided against hot soup. Fair. Ultimately, though, 
it didn't matter whether or not Thornfield brought hot soup with him. Because once he was out on the open water, he realised that while you can pilot a orb across a small body of water, it's basically impossible to control one on an actual ocean. And just 100 metres out, Thornfield had to be rescued by the Coast Guard before he was swept out to sea, never to be seen again. Chris, why did he, why did he want to zorb around the world in the first place? Well, like Barry Donoghue, he just wanted a world record. Barry Donoghue? Yeah. There's this podcast called Chickens Can't See Cubes about true facts. And in a previous episode, they discussed an Australian man called Barry Donoghue, who does not hold the world record for the most failed world record attempts. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, knew, I knew the fact. I just I'd forgotten his name. Yes. OK. Yeah. Well, I mean, very good callback. Uh, excellent. I'm sure everyone else will know what you were talking about. Basically, you thought that zorbing looked easier than other methods for getting around the world, like walking or driving or hot air ballooning. He thought if hamsters can do it, I can. Well, yeah, that's quite, kind of what I thought, you know, I was like, because I went zorbing. Do you remember zorbing, Chris? Yeah, <laughs> I, I thought like, that'd be easy. It's just like hamsters and I, I, I am better than hamsters. Because that one of those like motivational tapes you have. Like every morning, repeat to yourself, I am better than hamsters. <laughs> oh, oh, if this bit doesn't go in, I'll be very upset. <laughs> um, Chris, sounds like he had quite a exhilarating adventure, to be honest. Did he keep a diary or anything? He started to early on, but it ended up covered in hot soup. Oh, right. Okay. You can now only make out the odd word like zorb and tired and hot and soup. Well, it gives you an idea of the frenetic nature of the Zorbing experience, even if it is a little bit fragmented. That it does. So you mentioned earlier about world record attempts and stuff. Like Any other weird ways people have attempted to travel around the world? Oh, there's all sorts. Pogo stick, crawling. Crawling. Oh, bloody hell. Who wakes up one day and just goes, right, do you know what? Fucking, I feel like what would make my life better is <laughs> to just get on my hands and knees. I could actualize my potential. Yeah, by experiencing the floor of the entire planet with my knees and hands. Oh, God, no, that just sounds horrible. Relatedly, the worm was a method used to get around the world. On the back of a worm? No, the um, the dance move, the worm. What is the, what, what's that? You know what it is when you, like, flop on the ground in a forward momentum. Ah. Oh. Okay, yeah. There's a man who claims to have snuck around the world. Well, I feel like you'd need to sneak around a fair bit of it anyway, no matter what country you're from. There's going to be a bit that's a bit uncomfortable to get through. So he just purposefully just pretended he was in trouble or something. Well, no, I mean, he, he snuck around the world as in he, he traversed the globe in a stealthy manner, um, minimising the visual contact with other beings. Basically, he claims to have circumnavigated the globe in so stealthy a manner that nobody actually noticed. To the point where Guinness is refusing to give him the record because nobody can corroborate this, which he claims just shows how sneaky he was. <laughs> I think we should have him on the show. Well, do you know what, Piper? He's with you right now. Ah, no! <laughs> Stop, stop it. 
I mean, maybe he is. I mean, maybe he's sneaking through your house right now with another circumnavigation. I mean, you know, he obviously can't use Airbnb because they've got an online form, so they'd know where he was. So, you know, he's, he'd have to use Meowse because like, he can't stay anywhere. He needs to be off the grid, so he'd need to stay at Meowse without asking. So I guess I guess you can't be mad at him. I mean, I feel like you could be mad at him for breaking into your house and sleeping there. Well, ordinarily, yeah, it's literally a home invasion. But but come on, this is to get a world record. It's wacky. <laughs> oh, it's wacky. So, oh, that's fine then. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the first rule of comedy. You can break the law. It was wacky, Your Honour. <laughs> okay well so this is the last one the fourth fact fourth fact fact number four isn't it chris i believe so yes i mean we've covered counting already yeah we did three so four comes afterwards not five anyway what do 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 the do the do the words okay the words are there There is a Christian-themed theme park called Bible World. There have been a number of oddly-themed theme parks around the world since theme parks got invented. It's not just Mickey Mouse or Harry Potter. Oh, no. The UK in the 90s had the incredible but utterly terrifying Mr. Blobby theme park, known as Blobbyland. Crinkly Bottom! No, it says on the internet... Yes, it was Crinkly Bottom, but it was also popularly referred to as Blobbyland. I'm not having this, Chris. Yeah, but Piper, Crinkly Bottom is funny to say. It is. All right, I'm going to do it again. Listen, the UK in the 90s had the incredible but utterly terrifying Crinkly Bottom, <laughs> also known as Blobbyland. Does that make more sense now, Chris? It does. It's also hilarious because of the way you put it. The UK had the terrifying Crinkly Bottom. so yes good thank you that's all right uh we also have diggerland which (laughs) it sounds very insignificant now um we also have diggerland which celebrates the history of diggers great diggers as in people who dig no as in machines that dig oh okay okay yeah good bloody lphd what's wrong with you the Dwarf Empire in China, staffed entirely by people less than four feet tall. Hello Kitty World in Japan. Bioland in Australia. Uh, that's an educational theme park which teaches punters about the uh, human reproductive system via a series of themed roller coasters. And of course, the fateful Death Park in Russia, which was basically a euthanasia clinic for thrill seekers. It was unfortunately closed down in recent years after a series of lawsuits from attendees hoping to have one last thrill and instead surviving with numerous permanent physical disabilities. But Bible World sounds fun too, Chris. Tell us more. Located deep in the state of Alabama, Bible World Amusement Park and Megachurch appears at first glance to be your usual fantasy-themed theme park with all the usual rides and shops and fictional mascots you'd expect. But Bible World's mission isn't just to amuse and thrill its visitors, but to teach them about the Bible and to praise the one true God and his son, our supposed Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Right, okay, okay. Well, let's break this down a little bit and gloss over the fact that you mentioned mascots, Chris. Um, (laughs) Which I did on purpose. 
And yeah, obviously, and I responded on in per, on purpose as well. That's how this works. <laughs> <laughs> That's how conversation works. <laughs> yeah. Responding on purpose is basically what a conversation is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you'd think so, but given my track record, <laughs> once again. Um, <laughs> all right, yeah, so glossing over all of, all of that stuff that you said about. Um, what is the park actually like? So, like, from the moment you walk into Bible Land, what do you see? So when you enter Bible World, not land, Bible World, you first find yourself in the Garden of Eden, an idyllic, verdant paradise in which a man dressed as a snake gets you to eat an apple. For health and safety reasons, it's not a real apple. Having eaten the apple, you are then forcibly ejected from the Garden of Eden and you enter the park proper. Guests are advised to validate their parking before eating the apple. So when you say ejected from the garden, like uh, like in a Harrier jump jet? Uh, no, like escorted by people dressed as angels. Oh, okay. Well, that's way less fun. Well, I guess it depends what you think of people dressed as angels. If you're really into it, it's great. Yeah, but I think if you're expecting to be shot 500 feet into the air by a pneumatic... To be fair, Piper, the word ejected is my inclusion, not used by the park itself. So nobody attending Bible World has the word ejected in their head. Right, so it was a simple lampoon on your part then, Chris? Not so much a lampoon as just a creative use of language. Oh, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? I would, yes. In fact, Piper, I just did. <laughs> oh, God. Right, well, okay. Right, so they leave the garden. Oh, <laughs> they, they get booted out of the garden by angels and not hydraulics. <laughs> and, and then what? So in the actual park, the rides are all based on stories and books from the Bible. So there's Noah's Rubberdingy Rapids where you race past animatronic drowning people and animals. Brilliant. Love that. The Tower of Babel is a drop tower. Like the people in the story, you climb ever higher in an effort to reach heaven itself. And then God punishes you for your arrogance by dropping you back down to earth. This is uh, assuming that the people that are attending are um, sinners. Well, no, it's just like the narrative as you walk up to the top of the tower is the narrative of the Tower of Babel from the Bible. It's not assuming that you yourself are trying to reach heaven. It's just recreating the story from the Bible. Right. So it's not like a passing judgment thing. They don't, they don't kill the people that are attending by dropping them because, because they're trying to get to heaven. Bible World Amusement Park and Megachurch would like to remind you that nobody has ever died on purpose while visiting the park is that is that from the pamphlet that's from their website yes right okay well i mean i'll keep that in mind as we move on through this so we've got noah's rubber diggy rapids which is very fun to say <laughs> uh tower of babel what else there's also the house of revelation a sort of haunted house ride based on the book of revelation I grew up in a religious family, so... Your dad's a minister. He is, he is indeed, so I, I should know all about this. And whether I do or not, the ensuing conversation, I hope he doesn't hear. I'm sure this is not going to go well. <laughs> so there's the last book in Revelation. No, sorry, no, I'll start that again. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, written by, I think, St. Paul, when he was high as fuck on Island of... Wow! 
th- I th- yeah, no, he was. No, no, because it wasn't St. Paul, was it? Wait, who was it then? In the Book of Revelation, he identifies himself as a man called John. Oh, come on. St. Paul's got nothing to do with it. And your dad's a minister. John the Elder. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, no. Yeah, no, no, I remember that. He was on a he was on a island of Patmos. Ah, oh, it's all coming back to me now. <laughs> it's all coming back to me as I read the Wikipedia article. <laughs> right. Yes. Book of Revelation. Last book of the Bible. <laughs> Written by, as we all all fucking know, John the Elder. Elder John. Elder John uh from uh the olden times. <laughs> When he was probably probably getting quite high on the island of Patmos. Lots of drugs on the island of Patmos. Probably complete coincidence that he wrote the book of Revelation. Weirdest book in the history of mankind. On the island of Patmos, which is full of drugs. That was some background, some enlightening background on, on, the, on the book of Revelation. So what's in the haunted house? Well, basically, it's a journey through the visions given to John of Patmos by one like a son of man as it says in the book of Revelation. Firstly, you pass by the throne of God, surrounded by four creatures, one with the face of a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle, all with six wings covered in eyes. Then there's a lamb, which has seven horns and seven eyes. Then you pass the four horsemen of the apocalypse, who rather disappointingly have the normal number of eyes. Then you pass scenes of war and violence, all quite graphic. Then there's a dragon, which has seven heads and ten horns. A dragon? Yes. This is like the best book of the Bible. Yeah, then there's a beast who has seven heads and ten horns. I feel they were kind of like repeating themselves at this point, like run out of material. But this is all in the house, all in the, all in the haunted house. Yeah, yeah. Then there's a bit of sexiness from the mother of harlots. One for the dads. And then Jesus turns up and everything's fine. Right. Well, good. I mean, it's not really haunted, is it? It's more like a... Well, I said it was a sort of haunted house. I was just trying to, like, give an idea of the kind of ride it was. All right. All right. Okay, so that sounds like a whole barrel of laughs. So, like, aside from the the rides, what are the staff like? Well, like any other theme park... There are costumed characters based on the Bible wandering around. Right, yeah. What, like, when it's, like, the Halloween night, like the Scarefest sort of thing? No, like, at all the times. Why why, why are they scaring the children? Well, no, they're not scaring people. They're just the mascots, they're, they're cute characters the kids can meet. It's not scary, Piper. <sighs> I don't like mascots, Chris. I... Mm. All right, yeah, fine. Um, well, which, which biblical characters then? What can, who can you who can you meet on your merry little adventure around the park and not be terrified by? Well, you can meet, not be terrified by, and even have your picture taken with the likes of Noah, Abraham, Moses, Job, Jonah, and of course, everyone's favorite, well, some people's favorite, Jesus. Oh, he's the star of the show, really. In many ways, really, isn't he? He's like, yeah. So, is it like a if you if if you the thing is, it's weird that they're being in like mascot type costumes because they're just like I can understand if it's of a mouse or something or it's like some sort of creature that you can't just dress up as. But like, 
these are mascots of humans and that all that's almost weirder chris because it's like what must you look like underneath that for you to need like fucking a shit ton of foam to make you look like a human being? Well, that's kind of the point. It's so they have like this standardized version of what Jesus looks like. Because like if they were just like a person in a beard and a rope, then the person would be different each season as people moved on and came in and whatnot. Oh, so as the kids got to know Jesus and then they went the next year, they were like, blasphemy, kill the fake Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, how freaked out would you be as some brainwashed Jesus camp kid to meet Jesus the second year you've gone to Bible World to find he's a different man? I mean, you're dangerously close there to the realisation that Jesus is an entirely fictional character. And we don't want that, do we? No, absolutely not. Hashtag not my Jesus. <laughs> okay, well, I'm I might be laughing, but I am also sweating because we're talking about mascots. So I'm going to move on a little bit. Um, let's talk about the characters as concepts, Chris, um, and move a little bit away from the uh, the park, uh, just because I'm sort of edging away from it in my head now. Um, what are your favourite biblical characters of all the fictional characters in the Bible? My favourite is probably God. God? You're going for the glory supporter. I bet you I bet you support Manchester no, United, no, don't you? No, no, hear me out, Piper. I like that he's so open to interpretation. I mean, is he the comic relief or is he the villain? Is he a bungling incompetent for whom everything goes wrong? create a paradise but then accidentally put the fruit they're not supposed to eat in the open oops oh now everything's going out of hand again so i guess i'll have to flood the world whoopsie now my chosen people have been enslaved by a nasty pharaoh suppose i'll have to kill a bunch of babies now oh god what are you like the character you seem to be playing in this concept of God is like slightly offensive 90s sitcom camp. And I I love it. <laughs> or maybe he's actually the bad guy of the book. And he does all this horrible stuff on purpose because he's evil. And that heel face turn he does in the New Testament, where it's all like, I'm a nice guy now, just ask for forgiveness, is actually a ruse because he's actually like, ha ha, it's impossible to follow all my rules to the letter, so you're all going to hell. Wahaha. And then he gets his own kid murdered for shits and giggles. Yeah, like he's just mad all along, and he is very unpredictable. So okay, so going back to the actual the place, the Bible land world, Bible world, where the mascots are. We've talked about the haunted house, we've talked about the, the Tower of Babel and the, the log flume and all of that. Are there any any more white knuckle rides, as they call them? Any roller coasters? Bible World has seven roller coasters, each based on one of the deadly sins. Awesome. They're supposed to scare people away from the sins. So, for example, the Lost Coaster careens past pornographic images and you're meant to associate your fear of the roller coaster's speed with sex and so swear off lustful thoughts. But that just sounds like the best kind of roller coaster. Like, like 
I don't know about you, Chris, but I like if I went on like a really fucking fast roller coaster, like really like doing the up and downy bits and the round and round of bits and like and going like really really fast downwards and then does the slowly uppy clicky clacky bit and then it goes down. I mean, and if bits of that just like every now and then you just got glimpses of a tit just every now and then you're like, this is great. <laughs> Um, in what is a rather glaring mistake, the Pride coaster is based around the LGBTQ plus community. And this has become a tradition for members of that community to make ironic trips to Bible World during Pride Month and ride on the Pride coaster. All right, so you've got me thinking about theme parks, Chris, just in general. Hypothetically, theoretically, if Munchausen Institute decided they wanted to get into the theme park game, what would that be like? Factland. Factland. Well, obviously, this is going to be great. Go on. So Bible World teaches people about the made-up stuff in the Bible, but Factland would teach people about not made-up things. That are real. Okay, sort of like an antithesis to Bible world then. Right, okay. What sort of things would be in fact land then, Chris? Because I love this. So all the rights would be based on facts. There would be the Trump trike roller coaster. Oh, brilliant. Does it crash at the end? A simulated crash, yes. Not an actual crash that would, you know, kill people. It's not like in theme roller coaster where you just build a one that would just you know, have people explode and then you go, ha ha ha, and then start again. You can't do that in real life. There'd be a ghost train featuring things from our spookier facts, like the football ghost, the toilet ghosts, and regional vampires. I sounds very educational, but also fun. But that's what we're going for. There'd be one of those... Um, you know those like the like shuttle things, but they're stationary, and you like get inside and they bounce about, and it's like it's a race car or it's a spaceship or something. Sorry, I, you just <laughs> you said you know those shuttle things, except they're stationary. I'm like, what? Like a room? Well, I guess it's like a room, <laughs> but it's like inside this thing that's shaped like a shuttle. <laughs> Do you mean a simulator? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, anyway. Whatever, there'd be one of those things that I've just described, but it would be cardboard box racing. There'd also be mascots everywhere. Right, I feel like you're taking liberties now. There'd be Hans the Bladder, licensed from the Gertrude Ewan Festival. A Mr. Cucumber, Satan's... Satan's? No, Santa's zombie children. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, Donald Trump. Well, a mascot of Donald Trump, as if there's not something scary enough as it is. Okay, that is it. You have been listening to Chickens Can't See Cues with me, Piper Dawes. I can be found on Twitter at Piper Talks and Christopher Parr from the Munchausen Institute. I can be found on Twitter at Trilby Norton and the Munchausen Institute can be found at Moon Photo Ray Ray, which is, as I'm sure our six listeners know, M-U-I-N-F-O-T-O-R-E-R-E. And you can contact the podcast on Twitter at C-Cubes, that's S-W-C-U-B-E-S, Facebook and Instagram at Chickens Can't See Cubes. Please be sure to rate and review the episode on your chosen podcast app. It really helps the show. Thank you for listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes. 
And remember, you probably could make it up, but we haven't. Honest. And we'll catch you once again on next week's show. Bye. Goodbye. Oh, so what? So he's gone. Oh, no. Right. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) I missed a word. I missed a word. I love how I said he was rescued. But the first thing out of your mouth, demonstrate that you don't listen to me. That is proof positive that you don't listen to me on this podcast. (laughs) In my defense. Um, in... <laughs> no, in... <laughs> let her finish. <laughs> right. No, I mean, the two bits that you, because you said he got rescued. He got rescued, right? He got rescued. And I've got that written down on my screen in my notes. Like he got rescued. <laughs> but then you said another bit that, and I was like, well, I must have not heard that right. You said another bit about him being <laughs> like getting lost at sea. So I was like, Oh, it must not have worked. <laughs> no, but I said before he was swept out to sea and never seen again. <laughs> I think I think I if you'd have if you'd have said after, it would have made sense. Oh, so he was rescued after he was never seen again. Is that what you mean? Wait, no, 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 no. Actually, no, that's wrong. No, no. But so what you so you said before, so we. He, he had to be rescued yeah, by the... Yeah, before, as in it didn't actually happen because he was rescued. <laughs> yeah, so he had to be rescued by the Coast Guard before being lost at sea. So that's the narrative. He got lo- He got rescued by the Coast Guard. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise he couldn't be rescued by the Coast Guard. <laughs> yeah, but the narrative that I heard was literally those words. I've worked it out now. He said he got rescued by the Coast Guard before getting lost at sea. <laughs> So I did hear it right. I just, I just heard it as a narrative rather than... But there was a narrative. Well, there... No, I mean the last bit. He was rescued by the Coast Guard before he got lost at sea. And that was just a whole story in my head. I was like, okay, so he got rescued by the Coast Guard and then he got lost at sea. But it happened before he got lost at sea. Yeah, yeah well, he must have just escaped afterwards. <laughs> just gone, wait. It's not enough adventure. I don't want to be rescued yet. Let me back. Oh, God. I'm actually crying. So am I.